This is Mystic Takeaway, dishing up extraordinary real-life stories to inspire wonder and nourish the soul. I'm Elisa Graff. My guest today is Pauline Dimmick of Westerlo, Belgium, who shares heartfelt stories of hope and loss and the grace and positivity that has helped her to heal. We've just got to learn from everything that comes down our path. We have to pick ourselves up, get up, walk again. Good to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Pauline. Well, I'm Pauline Dimmick, and I was born in 1953 in England. I grew up in the north of England, where practically everyone worked in cotton mills in the north of England. And I was the youngest of three children. Um, My dad was a merchant Navy seaman. My mum, she worked in the cotton mills. So actually, we, we didn't get to see any of them very much. My dad, we saw him maybe three times a year. My mum, she worked long hours in the cotton mills. So it's my grandma who actually woke us up in the morning, made breakfast for us before we went to school. And when we came home, she was there making meal for us. By the time my mum got home, we was in bed. She did really long hours. And I think what actually what actually changed me from started thinking differently is when I was 12, my grandma died. And my grandma wasn't, um, was never ill. So that was quite a shock to us. She died yeah. of a heart attack. And then I started um, thinking, like, I wonder what, where you go when you die and um, what is death? And can my grandma think? And surely her thinking can't stop. I even tried not thinking, which didn't work. But I was so <laughs> confused uh, and I was just full of questions where I didn't have answers for. Yeah. And um, I think that in my mind started the ball rolling, really, about, my, you know, about me looking for things. We have no religion because my dad was born in Wales and he was Catholic and he wasn't a church believer. So we never really had any religion at all. I left school at 16. I married at 17. I, sorry, I met my, met my, uh, my boyfriend at 17 and I married at 18. And I had my little boy at 19. Um, so I didn't have time for a career. Um, yeah, no, I, no kidding. You were busy. <laughs> I was very busy, yeah. I did work part-time. I trained as a telephonist, so I worked part-time in an um, insurance office as a filing clerk, really. Um, but my husband then, he was very adventurous, and he liked, you know, just jumping out, out of nowhere and doing things. And um, he wanted to go and live in Belgium because he used to be in the army and a lot of his friends had been posted to Belgium and he wanted to be nearer to them. So we moved over. We moved over to Belgium. I, I was 23 years old when we moved over. And um, six months later, my husband went back to England with his new partner. So what? I, yeah, I was left here with my son and um, it wasn't easy. You know, there was a language barrier. Um I found a cleaning job to help pay bills. Um, I worked on the weekends in a cafe. Wow. Um, but, you know, I was sort of determined to stay here because um, I didn't want to be confronted with my husband back in England. I just thought, I'm going to do this now. Wow. And I had, I had a strength, I had a special strength to do that. I don't know where it came from, but I that felt really courage. strong. That takes a yeah. lot of courage, yeah. So, yeah. 
A couple of years went by and I met a few friends by working in the cafe and a couple of years went by and um, I met Andreas, my husband now. It was my friend's brother. Oh, um, wow. I love those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, I got to know him. And um, and we both liked the spiritual part of life because um, because I was in sort of a sad time. I never went back to the time what I was thinking when my grandma died. So meeting Andreas, things started opening up. He too was looking for answers. He had mm. lots of questions and we started looking up on reincarnation. Um, we even did a Reiki course sort of to uh, to get us going. We, were, we had all these questions that needed to be answered and they just weren't being answered. No matter how many books we read, it was like, uh, we were, I think we must have read a wheelbarrow full of books, but they weren't giving us what we needed. We were still busy looking. And this is in the 70s and 80s? 80s, yeah. yeah. It was 1976 when I came to Belgium. So it was the 80s um, then. And after a while, we felt free. We felt as though nothing had, uh, had hold us back. So we bought a van. A mattress in the back, and we just traveled. We just oh, did a lot of traveling, and we did a lot. And it's a dream. Well, we traveled all around Europe. We did Wales, um, Scotland, Ireland. We did all Ireland. I wanted to visit Ireland so I could see where my grandma had been born in Cork. And um, she died in Wales, and I wanted to visit Wales so I could see where my dad was born because he was also not with us anymore. He died, and I wanted to see the church gardens and things where my grandma probably probably was the cemetery. And then it, I think it was about in the in the later nineties we were travelling on our travels, and we were in England in Glastonbury. That's when we actually got introduced to my tray, really because. Um, I just walked into a second-hand bookshop in Glastonbury and picked up a newspaper, um, something to read in the evening back in the van, stuck it in my bag. It was free. <laughs> and when I read it in the evenings, um, I found it a really interesting story. And we both talked about it. And I remember seeing my Trey's photograph on the back page of what was taken in Nairobi. And um, uh, right. it sort of, um, you know, I couldn't stop looking at it. It just felt good the story yeah. it's a very special image it was taken by a reporter right do you know the story yeah in Nairobi my tray appeared from nowhere and um it was at a, a, a healing ceremony I think there were hundreds of people there I think thousands even there was a lady who did the healing Mary 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 Akatsu. yeah mm -hmm. that's right. and um um there's even photos taken where he sort of seems to be talking to her so I don't know if she actually saw him, but he just walked through the crowds. People thought, this is Jesus. And people were just healing. Cripples were getting up and walking again. And he went as, as quick as he came, really. He seemed to come from nowhere, and he just left from nowhere. And that was in the newspapers. In fact, in the newspapers, it said, was this Jesus? Right. Later, uh, Benjamin Crim's master told us it was Maitreya. Yeah, it was actually 1988, I think, this took place, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, around there. Yeah, so I, we took, I took that newspaper back. Then the story got us, but because you're on holiday or because you're traveling, you put it to one side and you sort of forget it. And it, I think it was months late. It could have been a year later. I'm back in Belgium, and we went to um, a mind-body-spirit fair. We went quite often, really, because we were always looking for answers mm -hmm. to the so many questions. 
And we saw there was um, a talk going on later in that afternoon from um, uh, Maitreya and the Masters of Wisdom and Transmission Meditation. Um, so we went to the talk and that was it. That was the same story I just read when I was in England. And it, it just seemed really something was sort of waking us up from, come on, you've read this before. And we felt Benjamin Crane uh, talks about it as being fire in the belly. And that's what it actually felt like, you know, for, oh, wow, what's this? So after the talk, we went and talked to the lady and she gave us a book, My Transmission 3. And um, oh, we were full of it. She told us about transmission meditation, that there were groups. So we looked one up, we, we joined the group and we read the book and we just thought we have to do more than this. We have to tell the world. We have to tell as many people, you know, it, Benjamin Crane says it, just tell people. And it felt like we had to as well. So we went mad and painted our van. <laughs> what was on the side of the van? Oh, um, on one side it was in English. I think we started with just simple things like give peace a chance. And um, we didn't fill it completely. And put the priorities of my trailer on um, justice, um, yeah, peace, um, uh, we just filled it with messages, took bits out of the book of Benjamin Crane's messages and put them on as well, and any way to attract attention. And we just travelled mainly Belgium, but also Europe sometimes, and um, England a lot, because we had on one side of the van, we had it written in English, and the other side we had it written in Dutch or, or yeah, mainly Dutch. Yeah, we just um, we thought this is a way of, of telling the world. And we had leaflets and things in our van and the newspapers as well, the quarterly newspapers. And if people stopped us, um, we could give them some more information. We'd tell them a little bit and then we'd give them more information. And, um, yeah, quite often we were, we'd, we'd sort of park up where ice cream vans were, for example, and we'd see people queuing up and we thought, we'll just park here and... Uh, or we'd park outside an abbey where we thought there's lots of people here and stay on the car park. When they come back to the car park, they'd, we'd leave the back door of the van open and they could see we had leaflets and things in the van. And, and yeah, that's, I mean, some people just thought we were mad when they read it. Or they'd walk around the van and just look at it. And <laughs> actually say, what is this? Who is my trail? Well, you know, we'd put our foot in the door then and wouldn't let them close it and we'd tell them about it then so yeah sounds lovely but we enjoyed it yeah I think a lot of people thought we were mad <laughs> but I mean it, it would lead to so many wonderful interesting conversations right I mean you must have met a lot of people yes we did well um after painting the van we had it parked outside uh, the flat where we lived the local the local tv she used to pass every day to go to work and she kept thinking one evening I'm gonna knock on the door which she did and she wanted a tv anchor you mean uh, yeah yeah just a local tv yeah and she said she'd like to know more so she came in and we told her about it and um um she said well can I come back and interview you I'll be bringing some other people with me so we said well if it means we can tell the story why not so they did um, it was Andreas, my husband, who did most of the talking. Well, he's Dutch, and my Dutch was not as fluent as his, so he did mainly the talking. And then after it being on to local TV, the um, local newspaper came along, and they wanted to interview us. So we got into the newspaper, and um, I think one of the photos I put on was what was in the newspaper, the photo mm. they'd taken of the van. 
Um, and um, yeah, the, then the Belgium TV had read it from the newspaper. And that programme was called The Reporters. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And they sort of uh, came and asked if they could listen to our talk and, and what we have to tell them. And they did, they came and we told them, well, Benjamin Crime's coming next month to Amsterdam to do a lecture. Why didn't he come with us? Because we go every year, which they did. So they actually listened to a, to a lecture of Benjamin Crime as well. So we, we got the ball rolling, really, and we were just really pleased we'd got you know, a story to tell. It, uh, it just felt good. Nice. Let me just ask you, what is it that you felt was most compelling about Benjamin Krem's message? Oh, um, just knowing that the hunger will be gone in the world, I think. That, that hits you first, doesn't it, really? I think a lot, of people don't, a lot of people don't seem to think too much about that. I mean, it's so easy to forget, right? Because it's yeah. happening somewhere else, right? Usually now it's getting worse. It's happening everywhere, but it mostly happens in countries that none of us ever go to. The idea of justice, that everybody would have the same, that nobody, you know, there's not going to be anyone hunger or, you know, things like that. You just thought that part of the story, I thought, this is how the world should be. And it, it does, it hurts you. And then you think, right, we have to tell people that there is someone in the world. You can call him the Christ or whatever you like, but he's actually in the world and he embodies this um, Christ principle and he's he's here to tell us that we have to learn to share. We have to get the message out, you know, be more aware of what's going on in the world. And at the same time, try not to get too involved emotionally in the world, which is not very easy, but, you know, we try to as well. Try not to get too um, attached to the pain and the sorrow in the world. I think we've all had um, a lot of sorrow, so I think we have to learn. Uh, it learns us to cope with it. And, um, yeah, yeah, I seem to cope with my sorrow quite a lot, quite very well, I think, actually. I don't like to look at it as sorrow anymore. I just look at it as um, it's got me where I am. I'm proud of it, of, of how I got through it all. Right. Everybody's life is a journey. Yeah. We all have things that we encounter in life, but they're often meant to give us a lesson of some kind, some, to teach us something about ourselves and about the world. And yeah. it's the way to look at it. In a detached way, we recognize that there's a purpose in everything, right? Yeah. We used to travel a lot into England as well with the van, going for crop circles, looking for crop circles. And um, we believed a lot in the Space Brothers. So, um, yeah. We've seen a few... Um, special lights and actually a spaceship. Benjamin Krems um, said that it was a spaceship from Mars. Yeah, we've, we've through travelling around in that van, we've, we've seemed to have seen quite a lot of, you know, I think every time there was a crop circle, oh, let's book, let's go over to England, let's go and see if we can find it. And while we were there, there was about three or four more. So wow. <laughs> we used to say, let's go crop circle hunting. <laughs> um, Do you want to say something about the Space Brothers? Yeah, um, the Space Brothers, they're just here to help. They're cleaning up all the mess that we've made. They're the people like us, but they live on a different dimension as us. They, they live in a dimension higher. And, I mean, I know our government says that there aren't any um, people on Mars, but they can't see. They can't see with their physical eye. It's a, a dimension higher that they live in, and um, that's where our space brothers live. This is what Benjamin Krem's books have also explained. 
yeah, that, yeah. that we've been helped from behind the scenes for a long time by the Space Brothers. They're not aliens, not coming here to do us any harm. Right. Why would they do us any harm? They're, they're, I mean, there's nothing they want from our planet. They're much, much further advanced than what we are. So oh, we, we just love doing all that, Get going visiting our Space Brothers in the crop circus, hoping we would see them, which, you know, Andres had a sort of connection. He still has a sort of connection. Um, if he, you know, he asks for the Space Brothers, and he, it doesn't happen every time. But when he asks, and and uh, th- then you know, we get to see them. And strangely enough, we look around, and other people are looking at other things that we think, don't they see it? It's really strange. I'd like to share something with you if I can. And that was, um, you know, we did a lot of traveling and things with uh, bringing out the story of Maitre and the Masters. And then in 2007, Andreas had a severe heart attack. Oh. Yeah, he's okay now. You know, there's one um, of his chambers that don't work. Or he, he lives off three chambers. Um, but other than that, everything's he's fine. And it was two in the morning and I rushed Andreas off to the hospital, which wasn't really far. It was in the centre of the town. But I couldn't find the, the emergency door or anything. I was, was driving around in circles around the hospital. We finally got him in and they put him on, on the on sort of stretcher just to check him out and his heart stopped for about two minutes. And while the doctors were fighting for his life, Andreas was making a wonderful journey. He walked down this, this, he said it was a narrow path, it was misty, and all he could see was this bright, bright light and he kept walking towards it. And the more he got nearer to it, it looked like a big sun, about as big as a house, he said. And there was just all this fire just shooting from it. And it had a face and it had a lovely smile. And it, he just wanted to get there. And he just thought, this is home. This is where mm. I want to be. And there was a gateway and um, he wanted to go through it. And just before he got through it, Jesus stood there right in front of him. And he said, Jesus didn't talk to me like we talked to each other, but I heard him in my head. And he says, don't ask for love, give love. Don't ask for hope. Give hope. And don't ask to be understood, but understand. And go to the back of the queue. <laughs> I think he meant, you know, don't don't make yourself, um, probably don't stand out there. And uh, I don't know what he meant, but just to go to the back of the queue. I think he meant go back to the back of the queue, maybe because he meant your time is not up. You've got to go back. We wrote Benjamin Crame about this. And Benjamin yeah. Crame, it was Jesus. And he's healed him. And he sent him back, hoping he'll help now with uh, to help heal the world. Wow. Did he feel when he woke up that he had, had been healed? Did he feel differently? Did the doctors um, say anything about his condition then? Yes, he told, he told the specialist. The specialist came back to him the day after. Well, that was it. On the, when we was going to the hospital, Andres had a hand that he took with them. And he was holding the hand and he was saying to my trainer, if this is my time, Please bring me to the place where I belong. Wow. And that's when his heart stopped. Wow. But it all happened so fast. Yeah, it did. Well, strangely enough, I was stood there when it all happened. They didn't get me out of the room. I was just stood there watching. You know, it's like watching a film on TV when you see his heart going up and down. And all of a sudden it stopped. I was a sort of um, frozen, but I, I didn't feel any. I wasn't sad. It's strange. But I was sort of frozen. And then they took me out of another into another room while there was with electric shocks on him and things. And um, they gave me a coffee, but I couldn't get that coffee to my mouth. My hands was completely shaking. And then um, they had to get him to, a new, uh, to another hospital because they didn't have the instruments that they needed. And I just went with them to the, new, to the other hospital. And uh, I remember on the way back, 
I mean, I couldn't get back. This was early in the morning, so I had to phone a friend to drop me off at the hospital car park where my car is, which he did. He came and picked me up. He dropped me off at the hospital car park. I'd left my lights on all night, so I couldn't get my car started. So I had to walk home from the car park. And on the way home, I passed a friend's house, and I remember ringing on her doorbell in my pyjamas with a coat on. (laughs) And she just stood there looking at me, and she said, what's wrong? I said, Andreas has had a heart attack, and I don't know if he's okay, and I can't get my car started, and I'm walking home, and I haven't slept all night. (laughs) And she just took in and gave me a cup of coffee and woke me up. But, you know, that's part of the things that happen in your life, and you have to get hold of yourself, and... When Andres woke up in his room and and the specialist came to him and he told him, the specialist said, well, you've had some very strong medication. You know, you'll be okay tomorrow. So when Andres told him, he'd seen Jesus. There was a room with four beds and there was a man on on the opposite side who kept walking to the window where Andres was. And then he'd hold the end of his bed and then he'd go back to the window and hold the end of Andres' bed again. And he says... I don't know what it is, but I feel so good if I'm standing here. And Andrea says, well, I've just seen Jesus. And the man started crying. And the man actually came and visited us when, when he got home and Andreas has got home where we lived. Um, and he brought a friend. He wanted to, he wanted to, to share Andreas's story of seeing oh, Jesus. That's beautiful. Wow. So, you know, they was fascinated with the story anyway. In 2008, we went to India. We went to visit. Um, so Andres had his heart attack in 2007. In 2008, um, we went to stay in um, Mother Amma's ashram. Now, I don't know if you know of Mother Amma. Yeah, I know. I know Amma, the hugging saint. Yeah, the hugging saint. Yeah. Um, we stayed there and we you have to do seva, that sort of service. And we worked in the kitchens, cutting vegetables and preparing things for the evening meal. Um, yeah, we really enjoyed that. While we were there, we visited the astrologist from there. That's Amma had her own astrologist. And we started with Andreas to see what he had to say about Andreas. And he asked for the dates of birth of his parents. And the astrologist was all writing everything down with this little silly pencil with no hardly any lead in it, you know. And um, he was working things out and he said, oh, I think you've given me the wrong dates because according to this, your reincarnation should have been finished last year. Oh, my God. And we were back about that. And Andrea said, oh, well, you know, I did have a heart attack. He said, well, someone was holding a hand above your head. This is what happened, you know. And, That's incredible. What um, an astrologer. <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, he was, in it. he was really good. They did it in a different way than what they do it here. Um, he had all charts on the wall. And to me, he said, when he was looking at my, my dates, he said, um, well, it looks like a tragedy is going to happen, but don't take it badly. Um, everything will be okay. And um, little did I know when I got home that it was my son's death that was the tragedy. Oh, your son died. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry, Pauline. It was very sad. I think I went to bed crying, woke up crying, went back to bed crying, woke up crying. You don't know what to do with that feeling it's sort of your, your stomach just turns you don't it's something you don't expect you know I mean it was sad but then again I'm, I'm in a way I'm really grateful I can look at it now and be really grateful that how is his son it brings me where I am again it's it's made me stronger 
he he'd just been divorced and lost his job and he took his own life. Oh my gosh, that's really hard, isn't it? That is I'm so sorry. That yeah. is a terrible thing to have happen. He'd waited till we'd come back from India. He'd been planning it, but he wanted to wait till we'd come back. So we were in India for three months. And we spent the Christmas and New Year there um, because of the season, you know, not much rain and that, and not too hot. As we came back, he, he just took his own so life. sorry, Pauline. That must have been just, I mean, it's, I can't even imagine as a parent what that feels like. It's just terribly yeah. sad. I'm so sorry. I wrote to Benjamin Crame and told him because I was very sad and I couldn't get rid of this, this pain just here. It was sort of, it was just um, as though there was, I'd swallowed a brick. And it was just stuck. I just couldn't get rid of that feeling. I wrote to Benjamin Kramer, told him the story and asked if I could have his point of evolution and or maybe his, his rays so that I could understand my son more and, and understand why he'd done it. And he told me he was 1.3 in point of evolution, which I was really pleased. And he said, don't worry about him. He's through the gate. That switched my thoughts. So th- that was the start of my healing. And then I remember reading that book, um, Death, the Great Adventure, from Alice Bailey. It, it helped as well. And then I read upon Krishnamurti, watching his videos, and it, that all healed me. And I can honestly say I can talk about him. And um, and sometimes there's, there's weeks and months that I don't even think about him. It's just really strange. And sometimes when I do think about him, I feel guilty. But we actually... Um, give his organs. Well, it is, we knew that this is what he would have wanted, so we donated his organs. And this happened in April, and in August it was my birthday. And this is, this was the first birthday I wouldn't have had a birthday card. And I remember walking to the hearing, hearing the postman and walking to the door and seeing all these cards on the floor. And one of them was a long one, and it seemed to be come from the hospital. And in that envelope, the hospital had sent me a card that had gone to them first. And it was a man who'd, who'd had his heart. Oh, just, wow. And he was just sending, saying to us, thank you very much for this. I've still got the letter now. Thank you very much for this new life you've given me. I think your son must have been a, a beautiful person. I feel really happy. Oh I just thought, this is the work of a master on my birthday. And all the five organs, it was his heart that, that came along. So that, again, was a healing. And I think about a year later, I thought, I'm going to stop talking to Gary now. I'm going to really let him go. And I sort of, I went into a meditation where I used to talk to him. And I just said to him, Gary, you, you have to go now. I'm going to let you go completely. You're not my son anymore. You was my son. I'm not your mother anymore. I was your mother. And um, But what I'd give just for one more cuddle, and that was my last words. And then I came downstairs and I put the computer on and I get a monthly newspaper from Amma. And when I opened it up, there was a few photos and one of them was one of me being cuddled by Amma. Oh. So it really sort of, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I knew that was the work of a master. So this is the cuddle I just asked and you know I, I really really could let go I just felt strong we've just got to learn from everything that comes down our path we have to pick ourselves up get up walk again and wait for the next blow <laughs> and every time you get stronger that's really amazing and after that I think we both needed a change so we moved to England well we moved to Glastonbury because we knew the transmission meditation group there and we thought we'll just join the group and um, we had a great time we did the meditations 
We did the weekly market with a stand of uh, Maitreya's message and all his leaflets. And then we did um, the local fairs. There was fairs that going on, we'd do them. I don't know if you've heard of Glastonbury Tour. It's sort of a holy place for people who go I've heard there. a little bit about, I know Glastonbury is such a famous place, but I, I don't think I've been to the gate. Yeah. Tour is the German word for gate as well. Lots of people call it the heart chakra, but I've asked Benjamin Crame about it and he said, no, 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 that's not the heart chakra. He says, but it does have a lot of energy. He, he told me that there are prince has been buried under there with all his jewels and that brings the energy. And one day they'll, they'll find that out. And um, he also said that the energy comes from for thousands and thousands of years. People have been going up to Tor and praying and doing rituals. And that's given that energy, made it very sure strong. That's true of lots of places in the world, right? I mean, there's so many sacred mountains and sacred valleys and things like this as well. Yeah. And it has a well. It has a red well and a white well. And I asked Benjamin Crame about that one time. It was from Maitreya. And he said, no, it was from the master from England who'd, who's... Um, made them very healing. The red well is for your blood and the white well is for your bones and things. And so we used to drink drink from it a lot. One evening we were watching TV in our flat and we lived on the bottom of Tor, on the foot of Tor, and we could see Tor from our window. And um, Andreas had an urge to go outside. But he said he, he fought against it because it was interesting on TV. Then he got up all of a sudden he said, I have to go out. And he walked outside and he was just closing the door behind him and at the same time was banging on the door come and see this come and see this and it was a massive spaceship just hanging over tor it was i think you know about 300 meters from us it didn't look very far and it was very dark outside and it just lit everything oh up gosh. and it was just turning and then it just saw go behind tor and it had disappear. And we were saying, come back, come back, come back. And it came back <laughs> and it came down near towards us. We felt as though we could nearly touch no kidding. it. Yeah. And I, I went inside to get my camera. I thought I have to film this. Well, I got my phone to film it or maybe take a photo. And you just saw my battery going down flat. It went really quick. I said, I can't take it. They won't let me take a photo. And this went on for about an hour. And we did, um, we, we wrote to Benjamin Crame and he told us, um, it was a private viewing and it was a spaceship from Mars because I was wondering, how come nobody's seen this? It just lit the whole sky up. How come nobody's seen it? But apparently we, nobody did see it. It was a private oh, viewing from Mars. That's incredible. Did you actually end up getting yeah. any pictures at all? No, not one. <laughs> no. Well, we have taken um, photos of, of spaceships, what we've seen in the past when we used to just come over. So we have got a few more like lights, funny shapes and things like that. But this was a spaceship. It was, if you drew a flying saucer, you know, if you think of a flying saucer, that was the shape it was, which is like a flying saucer with all these little windows round and lights underneath with flickering colours. Oh, incredible. Absolutely incredible. There's, I think it's always so funny if you talk to people, you know, I mean, a lot of people have seen unusual things in the sky, but very many people don't ever look at the sky, I suppose, and haven't ever seen anything. And they can't even imagine such a thing exists. But how would you deny it when so many people have had these experiences, right? I mean, and more and more are reporting about it on YouTube and other places. You actually have so much happening. And so I don't know how anybody could even say, oh, no, it was your 
delusion that you saw that because I've also seen UFOs before. And yeah, there's no way anybody could tell me that it was my imagination. <laughs> no, no. It's the same with the crop circles. Nobody can make a crop circle like that. And the way it's not broken, yeah. it's, it's just bent and it's just, and you just sit in the middle and if it's a new one, fresh, you can actually feel the, you know, the presence of, of, the, of the Space Brothers. You know, if it's been there for a few days or a few weeks, then the energy just goes away. But if we knew there was one in the area, we were there right away. Took our van, mattress in, happy went. <laughs> we were on. <laughs> so, so, so lovely. I mean, to have that kind of adventurous, spontaneous uh, lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Well, we, we stayed in, in England until 2015, and then we came back to Belgium. And um, I'd like to share just one more story with you, if I can. And it was my 65th birthday, and um, Andrea said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'd like to go to the Hare Krishna retreat, spend the weekend there from Friday to Sunday, which is in the Belgium Ardennes. It's a lovely place. It's a very old castle. It's so peaceful. It's just surrounded by beautiful countryside. It's wonderful, and you can sort of join in with the bhajans and things if you like, um, but you don't have to, but it's just really peaceful. So we went there for the weekend, and um, we arrived on the Friday, and we planned to, to go back home the Sunday after dinner. It was quite busy because it was August, and there's a lot of tourists just coming and going. But on the Sunday morning, um, it was really crowded. So, so, so it seems as though a lot of people just turned up just to have dinner because it's really cheap to eat these beautiful Indian dishes for the Hare Krishnas. And, and we were just lying on the lawn, enjoying the, the beautiful sky, the beautiful weather, the peace away from the crowd. And this lady in white approached us. And um, she came up to us and she was completely in white, which isn't unusual because a lot of Hare Krishnas walk around in white. But she had this big white hat on, a big white hat that I just kept looking at. She asked us if we were going back, uh, if we'd be leaving this evening and if we'd be going in the direction of Brussels. And if so, could she have a lift? Well, we were going in the complete opposite direction of the Brussels. So I just said, no, I'm sorry. You know, I had to disappoint her. I said, no, we can't. And then she said... Um, do you think you could drop me off at the nearest railway station in Derbuy um, and I'd get the train to Brussels? I was trying to get out of this, really, because, you know, I mean, it's my birthday. I'm enjoying it. It's the sun shining. And there was loads of people. And I'm sure somebody was going to go to Brussels. So I disappointed her again. I said, you know, would you, you know what? Just ask around. And if nobody's going to Brussels, we will. But just ask around. I'm sure somebody's going to take you to Brussels. And so she went, she thanked us and went away. Uh, near dinner time, they started preparing the tables and getting the Indian dishes on the long table. And people started queuing up. And we got up to queue up. And it, there was just loads of people. And I remember looking back to see how big the queue was. And that lady in white with this big white hat was just sort of, she seemed to be standing next to the queue, just staring at me. And I was feeling really guilty for what I'd said earlier on, saying, oh, gosh, I didn't even take it to Dubuis. Maybe I'll see her later or something. I just hope she's got a, got a lift. Uh, anyway, after dinner, we went for our suitcases and um, walked back to the car park. And in the distance, we could see this man. He looked as though he was from India. And we could see him in the distance, and he was just smiling at us. He was still at the car park, and he had this big white smile. And the nearer we got to him, he took his hand out to shake our hand. And he said, oh, 
you've been here the weekend then? I said, yeah, it's, um, I told him it was my birthday, so we should spend the weekend here. When I saw this big smile, I thought, this could be my trail. And then he said, oh, happy birthday. I'm actually looking for a lift to Dubuis for the railway station. I thought, this is my trail. He's showing me what I should have done a bit earlier on, and I didn't dare say no. So I said, yeah, sure, come on, get in the car. We'll take you to the railway station. So he got in the car, and driving down, and, and it's a lane where there's no footpaths. It's a, it's a bendy lane all the way into Dubuis. And we could see someone walking in the road, and it looked very dangerous. And on the way there, he, this man said, stop, stop. This is my friend. Let's give her a lift. And when we did stop, I could see it was a lady in white. I thought, oh, no, what have I done? You know, I started thinking, who are these two people? And she got in, in the car and we started talking to each other in French. So I don't know what they were talking about. And on the way there, he said, he, he said to this lady, oh, this lady in the front, it's her birthday. And they started singing happy birthday to you just constantly and repeating it all the way to the station. And we were just all laughing at the same time. And by the time we got there, everyone was just laughing. And they got over the car and we wished them a good journey. And they wished us a good journey back home and, and happy birthday again. And we just looked at each other and we said, who was that? We just felt, we're just so happy and, and you know, this is the, the work of a master. I just believe in, in, in wonders in the world. I believe they happen and I just you know this happens all the time. This was definitely my train, probably Master Jesus. And I learned that lesson. I didn't say to anyone no more from, well, ask around first, you know. <laughs> yeah, we have to learn from that. And I definitely learned from that. These are beautiful stories. Thank you so much for sharing them. <laughs> Thank you for asking me. You've been listening to Mystic Takeaway. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing. Mm-hmm.